Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, we discuss the whimsical, mirth-filled era in human history when minor disputes were resolved with competitive murder, and how that led to pistol dueling very briefly almost being allowed into the Olympics. And then Brett talks about one of his all-time favorite shows and gives an eye-opening diatribe on why everyone should consider revisiting this modern masterpiece of small-screen cinema. Today, we're Brett King Bad. And Brett made me say that. Sorry, everybody. He writes our intros. Obviously, we're talking about the AMC series Breaking Bad. Uh, Josh, I need a new dust filter for my Hoover Max Extract Pressure Pro Model 60. Can you help me with that? Uh, I'm assuming that's some sort of Brett King Bad reference. (laughs) Yes, yes it is. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. What's up? (laughs) How are you? I'm I'm pretty tired at the moment, but I'm excellent. I flew all night. I got called in uh, to do a rescue mission for the Department of Defense, which sounds a lot cooler than sounds it is. Sounds important. <laughs> <laughs> sounds really important. It was important enough to give me 300% pay and some extra days off later this month. So whoa, <laughs> that's pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but we left at like 2:30 at night, and or yeah. In the afternoon, I guess that would be, and um, repositioned somewhere. I don't think I'm supposed to talk about where we pick up these Marines, but they were there was about 80 Marines, and they all had guns. And it's only the interesting. S- it's only the second time I've had. Uh, I actually did a flight with my last company that I flew for, where the only passenger flight I did in years had like. 250 troops and they all had weapons with them and obviously i'm sure they're unloaded but uh they still have them with them which is kind of interesting it's like a department of defense thing or something yeah that is pretty crazy to fly with a whole plane load full of armed people (laughs) that is not the way flying works these days it is it is not they they fall under a little bit different uh set of regulations um but yeah it felt good to take our uh, great servicemen, our great Marines, and uh, get them to their destination safely after they had been kind of hanging out all day because of uh, you know some other conflict, and uh, and then landed finally in Miami, repositioned the plane after that to Miami, and landed at 5 a.m. and got on a 7 a.m. flight back to Arizona. So here I am. Well rested and ready to go. <laughs> you look wet, very well rested. Your eyes are barely open. <laughs> yeah. But that's really awesome, man. I mean, that's uh, that sounds like probably the best job you've ever flown for this company. It's yeah, yeah. I think maybe things are going to fall into place. I know that's awesome. I know I've had my uh, my misgivings at times, but who doesn't with anything? Well, some things are arguably great. <laughs> Skydiving's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know. I've had my issues with it. I, You're right, Brett. I have a lot there of are misgivings with everything. Skydiving. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yes. I agree. Le- leave it up to me, a uh, catastrophist, <laughs> catastrophologist. Well, it's it uh, it, uh, it is good to see you uh, looking happy, even if you also look exhausted. Yeah, so buddy. that's good. Thanks. Some good news about the job. Yeah, you got it. 
That's great. Well, I got some good news too. It's not quite as uh, awesome as all of that. It's not 300% pay awesome, <laughs> but um, you know how for the last 10 years I've been sitting in a trash chair, right? That I got out of your uh, your wife's driveway when the, uh, the people who owned the house that she lived in abandoned it and said it was up for grabs. Yes, yes, I remember. So yesterday I finally went out and replaced my trash chair. So I'm sitting in like this probably can't see it but it's this luxurious faux leather that looks very padded nice. chair the best thing about it is all the upholstery is contained within the outer leather wrapping which is not something i could say for my trash chair no. that was like basically sitting on <laughs> it was like sitting on a combination of exposed uh exposed padding and like something the same consistency as spider webs. Some part of the padding just had started breaking down over the years. And when I would get up, it would like cling to me. So that chair had to go. The chair's guts were definitely showing. It was indeed. It was not natural. Actually, it may have been that way when I got the chair in the beginning. I think it was. It didn't seem to mind. You're like, this is the most comfortable (laughs) chair I've ever had. (laughs) It's the best trash chair ever. So I'm sitting in a nice podcasting chair right now. And also, I got a. This happened a few weeks ago. I forgot to mention it last week, but I got a message from a good friend and friend of the show, Chad Ross. And he said that he really appreciates uh, the little. Behind the scenes, or as we like to call them, behind the hears, because there are no scenes here. It's audio format. But our little uh, extra clips we've been putting at the end of the podcast, he said that he uh, he's listened to those and he really liked that we're putting those in there. So if you guys are like me, where as soon as the credits start rolling on your favorite podcast, you just stop it immediately, maybe stick around because uh, Brett and I sometimes put some additional material there at the end. Yeah, nice. Chad Ross uh, wins the prize for best tattoo I've ever seen. Uh, and listener of the year. Absolutely. <laughs> Congratulations, Chad <laughs> Ross. <laughs> um, actually, that reminds me, uh, DV, another uh, longtime listener, has texted me, and uh, I think he emailed us, but uh, Derek, I have not checked our email. I've been flying every single day, and I've been too busy, so I will get right on that after this episode. <laughs> Ooh, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. <laughs> Always something good. Yeah. You know what? Something I forgot to mention also last week coming off of, I had vacation brain, but I did want to get your thoughts about, uh, what do you think about the billionaires going into space? I am. <laughs> in what, in what, in what way do I think about it? Well, I mean, what do you, what do you think with Virgin Galactic and then, uh, the Amazon, you know, so rocket, whatever that thing's called blue. What is it? Uh, blue origin. Blue Origin, yeah. Blue what, origin. So, what do you? Th- what are your thoughts on uh, these guys going to space? Because the reason I ask is I know you'll have some thoughts on it, and I've talked to some of my other friends, and it's been kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, I was under the impression that I was like, "That's pretty awesome." If I had billions of dollars, that's exactly what I would do. Right. But I've heard a lot of people saying like, "It's gross," or like they should be spending their billions for other things, and or they, or they should kinda, stay there. What I've seen that, maybe that also I've seen those memes a lot is like a petition was signed to just leave Jeff Bezos in space. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't think that's how petitions or space travel work. But Or that rocket he built. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think um, it can uh you know I I don't think it does much than just uh go up and then fall right back down. I, I do actually feel a little bit conflicted about this issue. Um because I do absolutely see the value in 
uh, pushing space travel forwards and what it could do for you know the human species as a whole for the scientific community i think it's really important to take risks and dream big um but you know it, it does cost a lot of money and i do think we're kind of in a, a weird place in our society where we need to prioritize tackling some of the issues that we're having with wealth inequality and i mean never never in history has there been you know so few people that basically own such a high percentage of the gross net wealth of humanity. So, um, you know, if there's, if there's Amazon workers that are getting worked to death and can't afford, uh, you know, basic, like a, like a basic place to live, some healthcare, uh, food, and they're working for Amazon and they have to supplement that job with other jobs and they're working their buns off. Yeah. I think, we need to take a look at that. I don't know what the answer is, um, but space travel is always cool, man. You could, you know, North Korea could uh, take a UFO <laughs> vehicle into space. And like, I'd still think it's kind of cool. I, I, I wish it wasn't North Korea, but it, it's always cool when somebody does cool. It doesn't matter like if you're a billionaire or a millionaire or what like country you're from or what race you are, whatever, like. If you're doing cool stuff in space, that's rad. That's the final word. It does <laughs> it does benefit humanity and I think, you know, regardless of the wealth inequality and the problems with the Amazon workers, I mean, those are all issues that yes, those things need to be addressed and you would think maybe those things might be addressed before space travel, but on the other hand, if space travel is ever going to be available to the masses, it's definitely not going to come through the government. It's going to come through the private sector. And I, not that I think I'll ever be able to afford it, but it does seem like these are the first steps to there being a, an accessible space plane, especially like with what Virgin Galactic did. I think that is way more fascinating, even though it's not in the strictest sense going into space, you know, it's going into the upper atmosphere, but it's not hitting, you know, whatever the Terminator line is 66 miles, whatever blue origin hit, but it's still like that idea of them launching already being in flight launching, you know, from a suspended from under another aircraft and just the simplicity of that, you know, it watching the video from my layman eyes, it looks so less dangerous to do it that way than to try to break the grasp of you <laughs> yeah. know, Earth's gravity well from the ground. So I uh, I was really into Virgin's space plane, and I bought, uh, I, I will admit that I bought 2,000 raffle tickets in the attempt nice. to uh, potentially win a flight. Very nice. <laughs> Basically, all I really bought was uh, empty hope, but <laughs> I wanted to be a part of the raffle anyways. Hope is the most valuable commodity of them all. Yeah, you know, keep you alive. Something I think where I where I one more thing I want to mention that I think would help me like to form a more absolute opinion on this, I guess, or at least guide me in in a direction of being a little less conflicted is I would want to know why Jeff Bezos is pursuing space travel. I think intentionality is really the the foundation of, you know, what makes an action ethical or not. 
So if it's so he can be on the cover of magazines with his bald ass head being covered up with a big cowboy hat so he can just like brag that he was the first billionaire in space like that's not cool. If he wants to bring the species forward, like Elon Musk is very clear of why he wants to go to Mars. Like he thinks we need to become, uh, you know, a, a what do you call it? An interplanetary species. Like he thinks like a hard drive. If you want to have a species survive a possible uh, catastrophic event on Earth, you back up your hard drive and have two hard drives while we were backing up our species by having another colony of humans on Mars. Elon Musk is like, Pretty clear about that intentionality. I haven't heard Jeff Bezos come out and say uh, anything about the advancement of technology. It more seems like that rocket is just a giant, giant phallic symbol, and he just wants to be on top of the world. So maybe that's why I am a little cautious to just like give it three thumbs up like we like to do. <laughs> That's the greatest score you can get from this podcast. Yeah, he didn't strike me as a humanitarian. But uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the the most interesting thing about their launch was uh, the safety gear they were wearing. Just earplugs. That was... Uh, that? That's it. They... No helmets, no hair in his case, <laughs> no goggles, nothing. It was just earplugs, which... That I mean, that is not even bare minimum equipment to get into the wind tunnel, <laughs> yeah, let alone sure. space. So that's for that sure. was very interesting. Even most people like working in like a metal shop would have earplugs and goggles. <laughs> like, yeah, this launch doesn't seem OSHA approved. <laughs> no, this is this is this that complete disregard for uh, what anybody thinks. That's, <laughs> yes. what, that's what happens when you get the B with a, a billion with a B. Yeah, billions. Yeah. I think we actually talked about that on an off top oh, once we here. Did. Yep, we did. Speaking of off tops, um, so last week I watched an an historic Olympic event for the first time ever. Skateboarding was featured in the Olympics, which that is something that we dreamed about growing up. You know, I skated for like fifteen years, and that just seemed like a pipe dream that ever you know skateboarding would be. Nice, uh, respected pun, bro. Yeah, you like that? Yeah, I saw you uh, skate right in there on that pun. Yep, you know. just a little, Sorry. give it a little push with the back <laughs> leg. So, uh, the uh, the guy that won the street event, uh, Yuto Horigami, he's this 22 year old Japanese kid. He's the first person to ever win gold in skating at the Olympics, and he just like annihilated everyone at street skate. He was like a total machine. It was like watching him hit handrails was like watching those Disney Spider-Man acrobat robots, but with handrails. Just like a perfect machine delivery on some of the most technical things you can do in extreme sports. But it got me thinking, oh, I'll actually share, if you have, if you guys have not seen these Disney Spider-Man acrobat robots, I'll share a video in the show notes. Yeah, I have no idea what awesome. you're talking about. Is this at the Disney Park? Yeah, it's something that they're working on right now. It's uh, instead of you know, throwing oh, an I, actual human acrobat. I have seen one of these videos. It's really yeah. cool. And they got them now where they do like Spider-Man poses. I know that no one else can see me, but uh, you know this one? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, That's it's the classic. leg up, arm down. Yeah. <laughs> the, the robot does that as part of its acrobatic flight. It's really incredible. Wow, that's awesome. But seeing skating in the Olympics got me thinking, like, what are some of the craziest Olympic events ever considered? So, in my opinion, 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in my opinion, it's got to be pistol dueling. And did you ever, have you ever heard of the fact that pistol dueling was ever considered for an Olympic event? I have not. That's shocking to me. It's kind of funny because we were messaging those pictures of people target shooting in the Olympics. Yeah, I thought they did it's not so look weird. like Olympians. I thought it's so weird that they had their hand, their other hand has to like stay in their pocket. It must be a rule because they all have their other hand in the pocket of their pants. It's just part of being an Olympian. It made it. You have to be able to play two sports at once, shooting and pocket pool. <laughs> it looked just like very lazy. Yeah, it was kind well, of strange. those people's bodies looked a little lazy. <laughs> Uh, so, but there was this brief time in world history when dueling was so popular amongst the apparently sociopathic majority of the world that they found competitive murder to be the best way to solve minor disputes. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, at the, at the time, uh, that competitive dueling was as popular, people were lobbying the Olympic committee to add a non-lethal variant, uh, of dueling to the official games roster. And now dueling as an actual practice was absolutely insane and seemingly the product of a long time in history when human life was apparently worthless. I'm glad that I don't live during this era when your honor could be slighted and you'd be challenged to like a murder contest. That seems what, what like era was this really like, well, I mean, this was going really on happened. This was going on since, you know, the Middle Ages with swords, but also like in the Victorian era. And this, uh, all of this happened like in the uh, early 1900s. So wow. it was still a thing going on. And there's, a, you know, there's a long history of dueling in the United States. And the West. Uh, like the- yeah, it was just, it was just part of the zeitgeist yeah. for a long time. And so as terrifying as the idea of a real duel is, the idea of a competition is fascinating. And it, it's kind of the same idea about, you know, fencing. Fencing is essentially a competitive duel. But something about it with, with pistols makes it <laughs> way more interesting to me. Yeah, because with pistols, you're getting shot to death. With fencing, you're getting poked. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's just like an aggressive poke to the chest. Yeah. So this all comes from a Mental Floss article by Jake Rosen. In 1901, this French doctor and dueling aficionado, a.k.a. murderer, Paul Develers, developed the equipment and the process to duel without having to kill people, which doesn't sound like something a dueling aficionado would do, honestly, but I guess he wanted to bring it to the masses. So he made these bullets out of tallow wax, and then he convinced the gun manufacturer, Piot Lapage, to manufacture a gun that could fire this wax projectile. Wow. And... The guns worked off of just a primer charge. So in a bullet, you would have a primer charge that goes off and ignites the gunpowder, and the gunpowder would expel the bullet. So the bullets were light enough that they fired just off the primer charge. And uh, it, they couldn't use like an actual gunpowder charge because it would disintegrate these bullets. And also, for some reason, the bullets had to be kept on ice before firing because they were prone to overheating, which is... One of the weirdest things I've read in a long time. I can't imagine a wax bullet over. I guess maybe it would melt or something. Yeah, that makes sense. So this mental floss article mentioned that along with the fact that the gun, uh, along with the fact that the bullets were kept on ice, the gun was also kept on ice. And then they kind of hand waved that fact away. They didn't touch on it anymore. So something about this whole setup <laughs> had to be kept cool. <laughs> it's really strange. Was this a summer Olympic uh, sport or 
um, attempted sport or was this a winter Olympic? You would think winter Olympic with yeah. all this uh, required Ice. refrigeration, so. <laughs> but now this is a summer thing. Okay. So uh, Paul Develers, he formed the Société La Salt au Pistolet in France in 1904. And this was a, it, this was a society, it's like a, a, like a dueling society where they would outfit in fencing gear and these special hand guards for the shooting hand. And then they would pace it out and have competitive duels. They're wearing like these weird old timey steampunk goggles. It's really cool. I found some pictures that I'll share. That's awesome. But as, uh, as one reporter put it, he said, the bullets will be made of soft wax. Instead of shrieking through the bodies of the duelists, they will yield up their fair young lives like tomatoes <laughs> hurled against a barn door. Oh, my. What a, <laughs> what a, what a guy. I know. Like that, uh, that phrasing is way too analogous for just saying that Paul Develers invented paintball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's essentially what he did, <laughs> totally. which is really awesome. Yeah. Did you ever play paintball growing up? I did not. It, it seemed like one of those sports that took a lot of uh, investment to get into, but I totally would have been into it. It was really fun. I mean, we did it. We didn't really do it as uh, like going to official paintball fields much because uh, I grew up on five acres in Texas. So we would have basically like two on one paintball fights. And since it was just like me and my brother and our buddy, we would usually do that at night. So we do like one person would get a five minute head start to run out into the Texas wilderness at night. And then the other two people would hunt him down. Nice. And it was, it was certainly a thing that somebody like you or I at this point in our life with a survival instinct would never do like burying myself like in hay, old hay out in the field <laughs> oh at God. night. It was a bad idea. That's like where spiders and snakes and everything wants to kill you in Texas. That's where all that stuff lives. Yeah. So I would, Never do that now, but we used to do paintball duels where we would, we had these uh, crappy old paintball guns called Eagles. They were from Walmart and they were just like single shot and we'd pace it out just like, just like a duel and then turn around and fire and I get hit in the crotch and between the eyes more times than I can even count. (laughs) So so I would not have done well in this society just because I apparently have bullet magnets for uh, head and crotch. (laughs) Both fatal shots, by the way. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Instantly fatal. So in 1906, the intercalated games, which I'd never heard of until reading this, but those are the intercalated games were uh, commissioned by the Olympic Committee to act as a filler every two years between the full Olympics. And they were actually referred to as the second Olympics, but none of the medals were actually recognized by the Olympic Committee. But uh, at the 1906 Intercalated Games in Athens, they featured an event where solo duelists would take aim and, and on this plaster dummy dressed elegantly in a frock coat. And uh, it, this was basically like the Olympic event. It was a, a solo duelist event where that you would pace it out, you would turn, you would fire, then you're you know, scored basically like competitive shooting. But the the biggest proponent for this whole endeavor was a guy named Walter Winnens. He was this American millionaire living in London, and he was instrumental in getting this event briefly recognized by the Olympic Committee. And he spoke publicly about the importance of dueling on a polite society. And then at around the start of World War I, simulated combat fell severely out of style, probably because of all the real combat that was yeah, happening. exactly. And then Walter Winnens said, The invariable politeness noticed on the continent is the result of dueling being allowed as a man thinks twice before being rude if he thinks he will have to face a sword or pistol in consequence. 
Interesting. So he he was upset when the specter of being shot didn't overtly hang over everyone's head <laughs> during every social interaction. Well, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound as brilliant of a plan. But when when he uh, when Walter explains it, it sounds like. Uh, I don't know, like a great way to de-escalate violence. Just give everybody a gun and, you know, then nobody will want to get shot. So they're all going to be walking on eggshells, be super polite. Maybe we could try this on some flights, like just hand out <laughs> like pepper spray or something. We'll just oh, we'll yeah. start with pepper spray. That's This is the same principle that the purge claims to operate exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody gets like a baseball bat with nails in it and. Then no one will get into fights. Totally, yeah. That's what happens in The Purge. That's why those movies are so interesting. Yeah. Because no one ever gets into fights. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a pacifist's utopia. Exactly. <laughs> so there was this brief time when pistol dueling was a B-team knockoff, uh, knockoff Olympic event. And uh, this happened in that very short time in human history, uh, right around the time when murdering people for slights against your honor were, was just going out of fashion. So it's interesting that, uh, it's interesting what, what kind of crops up when, uh, you know, this, this whole dueling thing ran its course. That is interesting. I, what, what's interesting to me is that you think that this is one of the greatest Olympic events. I thought you were going to talk about Michael Phelps and his 317 gold medals. That's not as interesting as shooting people, though. Yeah, the, the wax bullets and <laughs> cyberpunk goggles of the 1900s. Totally. Yeah. Well, I just asked what uh, the most interesting proposed events were. Oh, okay. Yeah. I Do you think esports are ever going to make it into the Olympic docket? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would think something like... I know that I always think about skydiving, but swooping, I would think that that would oh, yeah. eventually make its way into the Olympics. But, you know, I've heard that, you know, swooping can't be included because it involves an aircraft. Like, you can't have any kind of machine-propelled portion of your sport. I don't know if that's true. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know. I think that esports, if anything, I think an entire different style of competition would evolve, you yeah. know, like a an Olympics of esports. I don't know if it would ever be considered on the same stage as, you know, athletes that train their entire lives. It's kind of a, a different type of competition. I don't know if you can have a pistol shooting competition, like that's not a hugely athletic endeavor. It might take fine motor skills, but so do video games. That's true. It's a good so, point. I don't know. It's, Guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Hold your breath, Brett. And then when we find out you can breathe again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that. Okay, fair yeah, enough. Better than passing out. So, what's on your content circuit? So it's funny that uh, you mentioned that because pretty much everything I'm reading a book right now for the second time. I watched a show for the second time. Now I'm watching another show for the first time. I can't talk about any of it because one of them is my episode for tonight. Another one might give away my episode for tonight. The other one I'm probably gonna cover in two weeks. Mm, I got you. <laughs> so I got to keep everything so under wraps. You're not doing any recreational content consumption. No. You're just working. Oh no! I mean, I I am, but the last week I've been um, I've been pretty busy. If I'm not flying, yeah. I'm resting, um, or just like catching a couple moments to do some laundry. Um, but it's been good. Like I said, like I've I've really enjoyed work lately. I've flown with some fantastic people. Uh, it just really feels good to 
you know, get back in the air, be challenged. Um, the one thing I've had is like background content when I get to the hotel is the Olympics. But I have to say something about this year is different. I, uh, my wife and I are usually huge Olympic fans. We love watching the opening games. We have like Olympic hats. We're, we're more on the winter side than the summer side, but like we wanted to go to the Tokyo Olympics. And um, now I feel like I'm just watching them as like a detached, like background noise sort of way. I haven't been following any athletes. I haven't been following any sports. Um, I Googled it and actually viewership is down, I think like over 25%. From previous years so it's not just me like there's I, f- I think people just are not as engaged I don't know if it's because we don't have a lot of spectators there it's like a almost a spectator free Olympic event um, I don't know maybe it's just it's just not high on my list of priorities right now to watch sports but uh, Olympics are really like the only sport event that I like really look forward to so I'm it's surprising I'm surprising myself how I've been feeling about it. I wonder how that affects the athletes because, you know, I know that kind of the the default answer would be like, oh, yeah, you're doing it. You do it for yourself and you compete and, you know, you're really just competing against your own abilities and who cares if the crowds are there. But I imagine that not having the crowds would be something that would mess with your head because – Although it's, you know, the, the purity of the competition is ultimately what's important, you know you still want some of that worldwide recognition, that sweet, sweet worldwide <laughs> yeah. recognition. And it's, I think that it would be kind of a, a little bit of a letdown to know that people weren't paying attention like they normally do. You know, I imagine so. I mean, I'm sure it's like different for for every person, but I just imagine the energy is very different. And it's it's unfortunate too because Tokyo has had such a rise in cases recently and which is surprising because, you know, there's such a, a mask-wearing culture that conforms to the expectation of taking care of uh, other people and taking care of the society over your own individual needs. Um, tight culture. That's a tight exactly. It's a tight culture. And, you know, they're just, uh, I mean, an an Olympic event in Tokyo on any other like year outside of COVID would have been insane. Like there would have been millions of people attending from all over the world. And now it's just like these, you know, huge, empty stadiums. So it's, it is, um, I'm sure maybe the athletes feel, uh, somewhat uh the significance of it too like they're they're competing during a very unique time and probably one of the strangest olympics in recent memory so that has a type of recognition of its own and history do you think the medals will be shaped like the covid (laughs) (laughs) i i can see why the uh, International Olympic Committee did not accept your application for as a graphic designologist. Oh, you think that's why? Oh, well, I guess I should have hired you to be my manager. Like, guys, it won't be red and green. It's just, it's going to be silver still. It just it's has have little spots. S- little sticks with balls on it. So how about you? What's on your content circuit? Uh, 
I start digging into some more Hulu content lately. I find like kind of the hardest thing to cover on this show is movies. I feel like a lot of movies don't really offer enough to profile the way we do it. Maybe it's just some of the movies I've been watching lately. <laughs> but uh, but actually, I did watch two really awesome movies. But I'd say that uh, the first one, it's called I'm Just Fucking With You. It's it's like a not really a horror movie, more like a thriller. Uh-huh. Uh, but I've never seen really a movie like it. It's really interesting. It's just it's this guy who goes to this hotel, and the guy that's working the front desk at the hotel, is, he's like real chummy and making all these bad jokes. He's a little off-putting, but he also seems really friendly. And then it's one of those... It's kind of like the decline. We talked about yes. how the situation, you don't realize it's a bad situation until it's gone too far. Uh-huh. It's one of those movies. And uh, that, that's, a, that's a really good one. I recommend it for anybody who has Hulu. But also, I'm sure you listened to the last podcast on the last, uh, left series about Norwegian death metal, about uh, Hieronymus and Varg, the guys that started uh, basically like these crazy black metal cults in Norway. Did you ever listen this to is, that? This was an episode from a long time ago, right? Yeah, it's old. You know, I've been going in the back catalog and re-listening to you know, some of those episodes I haven't heard in a while. I have heard it, but I don't remember anything about it, so I'll have to revisit that. I'm pretty so sure I've listened just, to the entire catalog that's available on Spotify. So, like... Easily. From the last, like, 80 episodes on. or so, You know, the first, like, 80 aren't accessible to the... Well, the average public. Yeah, that's true. I think I've gone back as far as you can go to a couple of times, maybe. Uh, I have no life. But uh, <laughs> there's a movie called Lords of Chaos on Hulu. It stars Rory Culkin, Macaulay Culkin's brother. I've never seen him in a movie before, but he plays Hieronymus, who's like, he's basically like the, the guy that started the entire black metal, Norwegian black metal movement. And it is surprisingly accurate to the story that last podcast podcast on the left told and i'm sure that their research is very in depth uh and i went and looked up a few things that happened in the movie i'm like this is pretty much exactly what's on the wiki the wiki page which is kind of rare for a movie but it has some of the most brutal and realistic murders i've ever seen some stuff i was like i could probably skip the next five minutes of this murder going on but the the story man it's it's so fascinating and it's crazy to think it's like just these disaffected musical youth and how like misguided their path was, but how they also invented this hugely influential style of music in Norway. So that's a really good movie. If you have a strong stomach Lords of <laughs> chaos on Hulu. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. Wow. And that's pretty much it. I got some other stuff. Can't talk about it. Then I'm gonna pull up Brett and say, yeah, maybe you have to wait a few weeks. Yeah, keep it under wraps. Yeah. So let's, uh, Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll get into the content. content. What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics, come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, 
or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume podcast is streaming now. Yeah, you know what a suman makes out of you and me. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, you really uh, enticed me with that tease during the content circuit. I'm pretty excited to cover this one. This has been uh, this has been a long time coming, and I've really loaded up for it. So Josh, got a question for you. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> What's better than meth? <laughs> uh, trick question. Nothing. Well, how about a show about meth? That's right. Oh. It's time to break bad with Breaking Bad, quite possibly the greatest television show ever created. I never heard of this. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. All right, solo show from here on out. <laughs> so this was actually uh, my big binge during our content sabbatical. Now, this was um, you know not this busy week at work, but previous to that. Any free downtime I had when I wasn't sleeping or I wasn't flying, I was pretty much just spending that time out in the hot summer desert, binging Breaking Bad. Have you ever noticed on Breaking Bad? Not that I would know because I've never seen it, but they wear jackets a lot (laughs) on that show. Yeah, the desert does get cold sometimes, just just not in July, August and the beginning of September. And I am in the Arizona desert, uh, not in the New Mexico desert, but they look the same, really. They're dusty. And Jesse Pinkman looks good in a leather (laughs) jacket, which is probably why they punished him by making him wear that through, like, most of the shooting. Yes. I can't imagine that uh, felt nice and cool. But, uh, you know, little little meth makes all the problems go away, I've heard. I think. Be surprised what you can put up with when you've been up for three days. And if you know Breaking Bad teaches you anything, meth doesn't cause any issues. Now, do you think that they were method acting? <laughs> oh, geez. And actually doing meth. Uh, I do not. I do not. But it is—it's okay. impressive that they got a couple of actors that just look so like uh, like they could be doing meth. Uh, Skinny Methods? Pete, uh, one of the. Um, uh, she plays a prostitute. She's a very pretty woman outside of her like character makeup. And she looks totally normal. So they definitely, I mean, you know, the show is just full of people that are perfectly cast. Like so good. I've so actually good. watched the entire oh, thing have? twice. Oh, oh yeah. I was, I was just I uh, lying have. earlier. I know you, I knew you'd yeah. seen it at least once. Uh, it's interesting. I didn't think. What's that? Oh, I think that maybe I, have, I would have to tell you that I was joking earlier. I don't think you picked up on it, but I have seen the the entire thing twice. I watched it uh, when it first came out, and then also during COVID, I watched everything again. <laughs> Actually, I watched it all, I'd say, from the first appearance of Saul Goodman. So I didn't watch like the first like six episodes because I was watching Better Call Saul, and I was like, man, this show might actually be better than Breaking Bad. And... The story is great, but also just like the cinematography and the lighting and everything in Better Call Saul is, it's like every scene, every frame of painting, you know, you've heard that. That's how that show is shot, which is really amazing. And then I got obsessed with Saul Goodman as a character, so I went back and watched, you know, five and a half seasons of Breaking Bad. 
better, so I, like I got the gist of it the second time. Too. So Better Call Saul, I have never seen before until recently. I can't believe I never started watching it. I remember when you were talking about Better Call Saul, and I was a huge Breaking Bad fan. Um, after this second Breaking Bad binge in preparation for this episode, I started Better Call Saul, and I'm already like, I don't know, on season three, I think. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic. I, like you said, it, it, I, I wouldn't say that it's better. I think that they're just different in their style and their tone. I think Better Call Saul is a little funnier. It's a little more comedic, but it still has like the dark soul, the dark heartedness of it at its core. Um, you know, and I, I have a feeling, you know, there's, you know, enough background on the character watching Breaking Bad. I have a feeling things are going to turn out very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how the story ends. <laughs> right. But uh, I do love that, like, Saul Goodman seems like such a caricature of, like, a scuzzy lawyer that it would have been really easy to just say, like, yeah, this is who this guy is, and he's always been this. But for them to create, like, an entire backstory and to see, like, Bob Odenkirk, like, play almost a completely different character leading up to becoming Saul Goodman is really interesting. And it just is like a testament to how good everyone involved with both of those shows really, really are because I'm sure they had these like character Bibles for all of the characters, you know, that went back years and years beyond what you see on the show. Cause that's what they normally do when a, when a character seems like a real person, but it's, it's really cool to see that entire character Bible played out. I mean, look at several seasons. Look at Jimmy McGill's assistant, Saul's assistant, she was in Breaking Bad, and we got to see the develop the development of her character with this spinoff show that's just as good as the original that it's spinning off from. I mean, for sure, Breaking Bad, every single character has a well-developed, well-thought-out storyline. We just don't see most of it. We see, like, one character's storyline and maybe, you know, the damage that he does and the connections that he has and some of the other snippets of others but you can just catch these little moments where there is so much depth behind every character's arc. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's one of the beauties of this, of this darn show that I'm going to talk about. So, so if Josh, you guys have never heard of it, you don't even need to listen <laughs> to the rest of this. Go watch Breaking Bad, but also listen to the rest of this. Yeah. Um, I watched all five seasons in the name of Contentology. Because you know I take my role as a professional content- contentologist. Can't even say it, but it is a real thing. I take, <laughs> I take my role very seriously. And I think a show with such a celebrated standing, such as Breaking Bad, this is the kind of thing that you can't just brush up on. You really need to uh, dive into, get into before talking about it uh, in depth. And you know what? Part of the show is uh, just having an excuse to binge watch excellent entertainment. And so I'm doing a little bit of that. So um, full disclosure, just like you, and I think that this is relevant to my entire outline, this was my second straight through rewatch. So I had watched it when it was airing originally. And one of the things that I want to talk about is how much my understanding and relationship with these characters has really changed on my second viewing. It, I feel like this is a totally different show watching it for the second time than what I remember 
uh, about the, or what I think I remember at least about watching it the first time. But first, let me get so into this isn't, uh-huh. this isn't necessarily trying to sell people on the idea of Breaking Bad then, because most people have probably seen it, but the idea of watching it again. Exactly. I would assume most of our listeners have seen Breaking Bad. I mean, it is incredibly popular, but even if this episode just guides you to rewatch it or to get into a spinoff like Better Call Saul or just get online and do some like research on some of the backstories, because there are some plot points that are a little difficult to understand because they, they don't make it obvious in the show what's happening. There is some disconnection in the Breaking Bad narrative that I think is is symbolic of not having all the information depending on what perspective you have, which is just how real life is. None of us have the complete picture. We only have a little snapshot, our perspective. But I want to talk about the background a little bit in case uh, you haven't heard of this. (laughs) If you've been living under a (laughs) rock in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So Breaking Bad is a very dark and very dramatic television series. It aired on AMC from January 2008 to September 2013. Uh, You could give it many labels. Uh, It's a serial drama. It's a thriller. The one that I like the best uh, comes straight from Wikipedia. It's neo-Western crime drama. And it's set, it's filmed in Albuquerque. It follows the story of Walter White. And he's this nearly broken down and out genius who instead of living up to his potential as a brilliant chemist and co-founder of this multi-billion dollar enterprise called Grey Matter, uh, he's actually just teaching high school classes to a bunch of disinterested kids and he's also being low-key bullied by his brother-in-law and he's just kind of this like, I don't know, sad sack loser. So yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. uh it's an interesting backstory for an anti-hero. I guess maybe not even an anti-hero. He might just fall straight into villain towards the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's the question, isn't it? Because um, that is one of the things that shifted for me between the first watching and the second watching. But, uh, you know, the, this character at the beginning, he he's apathetic. He's disinterested. He seems totally beaten down. He's, I mean, he's kind of relatable. Like, life is hard. And everybody has has been there if they're not there right now. I know that I've felt uh, disinterested and beaten down before. But we also do see these sparks of his passion for chemistry. I mean, he obviously loves chemistry. He loves teaching chemistry. And we see this almost immediately in the show. But his excitement is always just lost on people. They just don't give a crap about what he's excited about. And it just seems to feed into this cycle of not having any fulfillment in his life. Not to mention, on top of that, he can barely make ends meet for his family. And then his situation gets even worse when he is diagnosed with stage 3 lung cancer. And that seems to be the catalyst for a pretty big lifestyle change. (laughs) (laughs) One that results him transforming into a notorious criminal mastermind famous for synthesizing incredibly pure crystal meth. So it was either the cancer that led him down that path, or it was the mustard on his oncologist's shirt. It's hard to say which, but I'm going with cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever heard... uh, Actually, I I never realized that Breaking Bad was an AMC show, because I think I probably watched it on Netflix, but uh, it makes sense. Have you ever heard the, the Breaking Bad, Walking Dead connection? 
Uh, no, but you. This is only valid if you throw Mad Men in there too, because they were all like the golden era of television. AMC was just cranking out incredible content, like all at the same time. It was unbelievable. Oh yeah, AMC is like probably the best network there is. But there's a. Uh, uh, in the first episode, Merle, who is uh, Michael Rooker, Daryl Dixon's brother, yeah, he's yeah. got like a bag of drugs, and it's got the blue meth in it from from Breaking Bad, which people, you know, it's like it could just be an Easter egg, but there's like this whole theory that the the blue meth from Breaking Bad was like the catalyst that started the the zombie apocalypse. That is and, funny. Uh, I have not heard that. <laughs> I don't buy into it, but I do think that it's interesting that. It makes sense with AMC that they would put that little Easter egg in there. Like, oh, yeah, this guy bought some drugs from, you know, Walter White's operation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's hilarious. Um, well, I, I do want to point out uh, something that I love about the show, even though it's glaringly obvious to any fans. The the whole overarching theme of this show is is laid out in one of the opening high school chemistry class scenes. Walt is telling his class that chemistry is the study of change. It's the study of transformation. And Breaking Bad, it's, it's characters and, and it's viewers. They all go through the same thing, this, a serious change. I guess you could say that about Walking Dead, too. Turning into a zombie is all about change, isn't it? Sure. Mad Men. And if you want to know what it's like to be a zombie, read the book I, Zombie by Hugh Howie, which we've also <laughs> covered on this story or on this I, show. I still haven't read it yet. I have Daniel Suarez next on my list, but... Um, Ooh, nice. I'm, I'm like I'm like kind of afraid to read I, Zombie. Oh, it's good. What, what's so good about it, though, is it, <laughs> it's, it's rough. But it just gives you... It's like... It's like uh, we talked about like the vantage point that avatar gives you about thinking about like waking up with your avatar not fully synced right it gives you that kind of vantage point with all zombie stories that you read for the rest of time because it makes you think like maybe there is some sort of sentience locked away inside the zombie and then it makes zombie stories which are kind of i don't know they're kind of getting a little rote and hacky and you know there's so many of them even though i still love it when a good one comes out but it just gives you a whole nother way to look about uh, look at the story thinking about there might be something going on besides just the zombies being like a headshot target. Totally. I, I love those like pieces of entertainment that reframe every other, like, you know, not canon uh, piece of entertainment within that same genre or style. I, I it's, 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 it's hard to pull off. The only example yeah. that I can think of that comes to mind is cabin in the woods that like yeah, did that for exactly. horror movies. Like that was, Absolutely brilliant. And uh, Breaking Bad has really changed the way I look at New Mexico. <laughs> and meth. And jackets in the desert. <laughs> so one of the greatest aspects of Breaking Bad is obviously Walter White and the actor who expertly played him, Brian freaking Cranston. This was basically a super talented actor that would more or less flew under the radar in these small roles here or there. Uh, the one exception being the universally acclaimed Malcolm in the Middle. Were you a Malcolm in the Middle fan? Mm, not really. I mean, I, I understand enough to respect it, but it wasn't really something I watched. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. But I'd seen enough of it to, you know, to have this thought when I started watching Breaking Bad. I wondered how on earth did the creator and producer Vince Gilligan see the dad from Malcolm in the Middle and think he would be the perfect 
actor to play this super intense dark character. So I have. That's why it's such perfect <laughs> casting because no one would have assumed that. That's just like it's the perfect starting point for that character. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think like I was trying to explain it in my mind, like, well, you know, if you watch Malcolm in the Middle. Brian Cranston really commits to the role. He'll do like these, you know, crazy over the top things in his underwear and roller skating around. And But I actually did a little research and there's a fun little story that you may or may not know. Uh, so Vince Gilligan was a writer on X-Files and Brian Cranston had a one episode spot on X-Files. It was an episode called Drive. Now, I was a huge X-Files fan and I remember this episode. Mulder had to keep driving... Brian Cranston's character West to prevent him from dying. Does this ring a bell at all? Mm, I watched some X Files, but I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't a big enough fan to remember like specific episodes. Gotcha. I well, just remember thinking like, "Will they? Won't they?" Mulder yeah. and Scully. <laughs> yeah, everybody was thinking that. That's like that's what kept <laughs> you coming back. It was like the monster of the week was fun. There was a conspiracy uh, overarching story, but really everybody was. Uh, uh, just there for the tension. Indeed. <laughs> well, spoiler alert in that episode, Brian Cranston's head does explode at the end of the episode. <laughs> but before that... <laughs> and they don't get together, Mulder and Scully. <laughs> so Brian Cranston actually plays this unlikable racist uh, who, although he's this nasty human being, by the end of the episode, you feel sorry for him. You feel for his plight. Well, guess what, buddy? That is exactly what Gilligan wanted in Walter White. So in 2011... Gilligan actually said of Walter White, you don't have to like him, but you need to sympathize and feel empathy and sorrow for him at the end of the hour. And apparently it was working with Brian Cranston for this one episode that Vince Gilligan made the decision to cast this guy to write this show. It was Cranston's impeccable professionalism as an actor, which really laid the groundwork for Breaking Bad. And I should mention, too, that many of the other cast members were former X-Files guest stars. Aaron Paul, who plays Jesse, obviously. Uh, Dean Norris, the DEA agent trader. Tuco, Uncle Jack. Uh, even some of the writers and producers like Thomas Schnoz, who wrote the Aaron Paul X-Files episode. He went on to write some of Breaking Bad's best episodes. And he's also a writer and producer for the Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul. And Better Call Saul includes one of my favorite actors of all time, Michael Mando, who plays Voss in the Far Cry Experience video that I sent you with Voss Montenegro. It's like one oh. of the best villains of all time. And he's in Breaking Bad. He's a, he is a great example of creating these characters that sort of defy your expectations. And, you know, this happens in Breaking Bad. Um, you know, the goody two-shoes father becomes the meth kingpin. Uh, you know, the crystal meth head becomes like the the sympathetic, uh, you know, lovable character that takes care of people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's he absolutely is fantastic and better call Saul. It's really a great show. Did you watch El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love all the Breaking Bad spinoff stuff, but it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. You, it's it's hard too as like a jesse fan and a you get your heart torn to shreds but there's this one glimmer of hope that jesse escapes and like you know he just rides off into the sunset and it's like nah <laughs> of course not that's not breaking bad <laughs> that's, style that's not how this works well um 
basically what I'm trying to say is everything good in life is tied to X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So let me. You're going to say tied to meth. So, <laughs> so let me get into uh, a little bit more what really changed for me on the second viewing as opposed to the first. So you use the term anti-hero. My first viewing, the way I remembered it, specifically about our lead, Walter White, I saw him as a bit of an anti-hero. There was something sort of empowering about seeing this down-and-out, sad sack pushover just take life by the balls. He reinvents himself. He makes his own rules. He basically creates an empire. I mean, even though you see him commit these questionable acts, these you know, violent acts at times, you still have that kind of understanding or that sympathy or maybe even like a weird admiration for him because he could always seem to justify his actions. He was always, you know, taking care of his family. But rewatching it made me realize one thing is very clear that either I had forgotten or maybe it got skewed in my memory banks or I just didn't really fully have a mature understanding of this character at the time. But without a doubt, Walter White is awful. He is a terrible person. He's the worst. He is the worst. He has but you know what? I think no he redeeming starts qualities. Off, he starts off as like a bit of an anti-hero because his, his intentions are somewhat noble. But it's just like being in that criminal world does not allow you nobility. And so he just kind of embraces the fact that like, oh, I'm going to have to be bad if I'm going to do this. And then ends up doing everything for the wrong reasons by the end. Just be like a that, total egomaniac. That seemed to be a little bit more in line with what I believed on the first viewing. On the second viewing, I completely disagree. I think he's a pretty like um, bad person from the start. I think he's he's holding all this hate. He's holding all this resentment. And all that this catalyst, this change allowed for him is to just like be more assertive with it. He's more confident. Um, But there's plenty of signals straight from the get go where, you know, he has an opportunity to walk away with all this cash. And if he really was just doing this for his family, then he would just walk away. I think the only time, the only moment of redemption for him is near the end when he finally admits the truth to his wife, Skylar, and he says, no, I wasn't doing this for you. I did it because I liked Mm. it. He was honest for like the first time in the entire show. And this is something I feel like you really have to watch a second time to see because the the show just, you know, you're used to watching a protagonist. Like we are conditioned. I feel like AMC was kind of the first network Possibly, I could be wrong about this, but this is my feeling because there was this wave of anti-hero entertainment. And I feel like, you know, Breaking Bad was one of the shows that was kind of creating that mold. And we were almost set up to really like this guy. But he's not he I don't think uh, he started out good and was slowly became bad. I think if you... um, look a little bit more carefully and, and rewatch it, you see that he's pretty terrible from the get-go. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have skipped the first five and a half episodes. <laughs> I guess not. So, um, you know, this, this, the, there were these moments, these moments were, that I viewed the first time as like, a, you go, dude. Uh, w- this 
mentality. I think one of the moments that sticks out for me is when he like rage quits his job at the um, at the car wash, and he just kind of grabs his privates through his pants like a you imagine like a rapper would, and he's just like you know oh, grab this or whatever he yells at the guy. And when I had originally seen that, you're like yeah yeah you know everybody loves a good like rage quitting story, but watching it again, Go melt your boss in a bathtub. <laughs> exactly. No, he just. Watching it again, he just seems like so vengeful. He's angry. He's passive aggressive. He just comes across as a monster that doesn't know how to handle his emotions or communicate with other people. And this is early on in the show. I mean, this is, this is, so it shows me that this has always been just below the surface, just bubbling, just ready to come out. It just needed just a little bit of just like a straw on the camel's back. And there's this wonderful contrast here with our two incredible leads. That again, I've mentioned this before, I think it's pretty obvious to most viewers, but it's so perfectly executed and it really, I think, takes some unpacking and it gets better on a rewatch. But Jesse, you know, he's this screw up and you find out that he's really the person that is trying to really make good decisions. He's trying to better himself. He shows real empathy. He shows compassion. He wants to walk away. Uh, he doesn't show this insatiable greed that Walt does, this hatred, this jealousy. But, you know, it's clear that we see a lot of pain from Jesse. And I do think, like, I try to, if there is any, like, excuse for Walt's behavior, I think that he's in pain too, but it just comes out in a very, like, callous, angry way, and he just lashes out at others. Yeah, it's sad that... Uh, with Jesse's story that no matter how much good he tries to do, he really can't. It's almost like he's not allowed to do yeah. any good being in Walter's shadow. For sure. For sure. You know, uh, uh, so on the, on the background story aspect a little bit, um, a, and this was something that came up on my second rewatch, a really interesting moment that I think highlights the depths of Walter's ability to hold resentment. It's this moment that I think just faded into the background for me on the first viewing because of all this other insane stuff and all these, you know, developments that are taking the spotlight. But this moment that I really noticed this time is a scene in one of the last episodes. It's this one little bit about gray matter so Walter reveals in the last season that he checks the valuation of the company Gray Matter every single week. This is a company he founded in grad school with Elliot and Gretchen. So the backstory is Walt and Elliot were best friends at Caltech. They worked on their thesis together. Eventually, they formed their own scientific research company. They named it Gray Matter Technologies after their two last names combined. He's white. Uh, he, uh, Elliot is Schwartz, meaning black in German. So the business started out slow. They had a few patents early on, but around this time, Walt began dating his female lab assistant, Gretchen, who we meet in the show. They fell deeply in love. At one point they were engaged. They worked closely together with Elliot. However, Walt eventually began to feel inferior to her and her family's wealth, and ultimately decided to break up with Gretchen during a vacation with her family in Newport, Rhode Island. And none of this is explained very clearly. None of this is really, there's no narrative. Uh, this is like, 
you know, there's fans on the internet that have taken pieces from different episodes and put together this tapestry to understand this, this backstory that's like almost hinted at. Like very, very like, you know, from season one all the way to season five, just these little tiny pieces that you have to put together. But when he said he checks the valuation, I mean, this is a guy that doesn't even have time to like, you know, see his wife because he's cooking meth all the time or he's getting out of some jam with the DEA. But he's checking the valuation of this company he hasn't been associated with in decades every single week. And that to me is like why I wanted to dive in a little bit further into this uh into this backstory stuff. So after Walt leaves Gretchen, he sold his one third share of the company for $5,000. He mentions in this story in season five, that $5,000 was a significant amount of money for him at the time, but as life unfolded, he watched the company's success grow and his 5,000 stake would have been worth $720 million. And Oh, by the way, of course, Gretchen eventually went on to marry Elliot and the two of them basically ended up at the top of this highly successful multi-billion dollar company. So it's kind of my opinion that a lot of this like undercurrent of hatred, pain, whatever, anger, is Walt holding on to this deep resentment from college. He clearly feels entitled to a lot of money. And I feel like that figure was probably about $720 million. Which is almost... <laughs> build your own rocket to space money it is it is there's uh not a lot of demand for meth in space though (laughs) well you don't know you haven't been there (laughs) that's true that's true i have no idea um you know fighter pilots use it (laughs) do they (laughs) yeah just on weekends i'm pretty sure pervitin which is the first real example of methamphetamines was created by the Nazis of all people, of course, but it was like used yeah, to prop up that. their prop up their army and you know those long winter campaigns. But also, it's like you know, there's been stories of fighter pilots using you know, like go pills, whatever it is. It's uh-huh. uh, probably some sort of amphetamine. Yeah, who's to say astronauts aren't next? <laughs> I, I doubt it's uh, I doubt it's the the same thing, but I I guess it might be similar. I don't know. I don't know. It's probably not as pure as what Walter was (laughs) cooking. (laughs) Definitely not. You're not going to send an astronaut into a flying fit of rage where he beats up his other astronaut uh, co-worker. Cosmonaut cohorts. (laughs) Um, Have you ever seen that video clip of Hitler at like a rally or a sports event and he's rocking back and forth um, because he's clearly high on some sort of amphetamine or methamphetamine injectable cocaine do you know what I'm, do you know what i'm talking about have you seen this video not not that particular it's, video it is but really really strange it's like it's worth it's I'll, I'll try to i'll try to if i can remember i'll try to pull it up and stick it in the show notes um he definitely was you know his doctors were pumping him with all kinds of stuff at the end of his life for sure Got to keep him going. That's right. He's an important person. You can't just let him crash. <laughs> That's right. Thanks a lot, Nazi doctors. So so back to Walt. You know, he's this brilliant genius. He's holding this deep resentment. And also in that dialogue, he kind of glosses over that there's some personal issues that happened between the three of them. And he didn't want to get into details. 
But after I rewatched five seasons of Walt just unraveling, lying, manipulating, basically creating chaos wherever he goes, one can only imagine what kind of quote-unquote personal issues were happening earlier in his life, because it seems like everyone around Walt becomes a hostage. Co-workers, friends, even or especially his wife. And another term that came to mind on the rewatch, this is a term I don't think was really in popular vernacular at the time Breaking Bad was airing, it, it's this word gaslighting. You, you hear this all the time now on social media or in relation to political figures. Gaslighting. Well, if you want a lesson in what gaslighting is, just rewatch Breaking Bad and watch Walt Basically, anytime he's communicating with Jesse, uh, other than the times he's yelling, he is gaslighting the shit out of his partner, Jesse. Walt has conditioned Jesse in basically the same way that a serial abuser would condition their victim. I mean, it is insane. It's really interesting saying that like everyone around him is a hostage. You never thought about that, but that's totally true. It's exactly what he does. He's yeah. like, they're like a hostage to his manipulations. Yeah, and... You know, he he tries to use these stories or use these incentives. But if he gets pushback and like Skylar is not a pushover, like she is a strong woman. And when she pushes back, I mean, he like ups, you know, the aggression or he like his total tone changes. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 he's a scary dude. <laughs> like he is. Well, she. I mean, he really he, is a villain. <laughs> He basically gets her going down a path she probably never would have taken before with like she's like bookkeeping and embezzling and all this stuff totally. that seems like it's a total influence by by him, you know, by the, his new outlook on life. Yeah, definitely. Well, Josh, I don't know what more I can say. Vince Gilligan created an absolute masterpiece. It is a truly dark, tumultuous, and meth-filled triumph of epic proportions. On display is probably one of the greatest acting performances on a television series ever. And honestly, I don't even know where Walter White ends and Brian Cranston begins, but it's probably at the meth making. <laughs> oh, you think so? I think so. Think he's not acting with all of his psychosis? No, I'm saying that I, I think uh, Walter White... Uh, probably makes the meth, but Brian Cranston doesn't. But besides that, it's hard to say that. It, that's that's what I'm saying. You think <laughs> that he has like this egotistical, vengeful streak, like running, no, running I really through like don't. one of the greatest living actors. <laughs> no, I really don't. I just think he is just a just an unbelievable talent. It's just you know, it's like almost hard to separate the two because it's such an iconic role. Yeah, it does not seem like he's acting, which is like pretty much probably probably the highest praise you could ever get as an actor yeah exactly exactly so thank you and Tuco bless the content clearinghouse for giving me a reason to spend countless hours engrossing Breaking Bad once again not only did it allow me to reflect on what a totally different person I am for this second viewing but I can honestly say I think the show was even better while watching it from this renewed and this matured perspective that i have it's like going from 60 percent pure meth with a hint of chili powder to Yo. say 99 blue sky heisenberg crystal 
bitch. (laughs) (laughs) So before I leave you to, because I know you're all going to go get re-addicted to the greatest show of all time. I do have uh, one little gram baggy size nug of content. I think any Breaking Bad fan will really enjoy. Uh, I'm going to link a YouTube video of an electronic artist on YouTube remixing the Breaking Bad theme. Uh, it's dubstep style. So his name is Ooh. his name is Metronome, and this song is freaking awesome. So I'm going to link that in the show notes. Breaking Bad fans are going to love it. Check it out. And uh, finally, Josh. Uh, uh, actually, that's all I got. <laughs> Break well, it back, finally, baby. then. <laughs> <laughs> what a sign-off. I thought I, I thought I had another thought, and I don't. Oh, well, perfect. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we just recorded a new ad for the show, and I think one of the things we came up with, whether it's uh, discovering a new classic but how did it go you wrote this line you know what i'm saying i think we're both losing it it was something about discovering a new classic or revisiting an old classic with a new set of eyes or oh yeah discovering a new classic with those same old eyeballs that are jammed into your head discovering an old favorite with a new set of eyes well, that is exactly like what that. this is. This is yeah. rediscovering a an old favorite with a new set of eyes. That is it. And actually, that's not something that we've done very much on the show. I mean, we, we've covered a few things that are like pretty mainstream, but I think that most of the time we're trying to bring stuff that people may not have heard of before, you know, and like profile that content and sell it to the audience. But I think it's really interesting and a, a bold move to bring Breaking Bad, which is something that probably most people have seen but now like now i want to go watch it again i've already watched it twice well but there's think, a lot of the stuff like the background about you know gray matter yeah i think i like might may have had like a cursory knowledge of that but definitely not in that depth it, and to think about him not even, being a good guy ever it wasn't even a plot line that i remembered from watching the first time. like i vaguely had an idea of who gretchen was there was some tension it was kind of weird the second viewing, I see that this this like resentment runs deep, and it may be the reason he is the way he is. And it's just these you can't like be you know watching Breaking Bad and doing something else. Like it's these one little lines, these one little pieces of info that really paint a much deeper picture than all the other meth stuff that's you know going on in his life that you know is trying to steal the show. It's really, really interesting. But Josh, I will say one, one, one last thing. I think the greatest praise that I can give content is when I rewatch it or reread it because there's so much good content to explore out there and there's so many new things to discover. And it takes a lot of investment to watch five seasons of a television show. But when it comes to something like Breaking Bad, it is actually a joy to revisit five years later and I'll probably revisit it again. And that really is like the sign of, of a masterpiece. I totally agree. I've covered, I can think of about five things off the top of my head on this show that were all rereads or rewatches or replays. So that's definitely something that I subscribe to also as a contentologist. And I think that that's probably part of content appreciation of not thinking of this stuff as being disposable. I think that that's, that's really easy to do with a movie. Like two hours isn't much of an investment, but watching 
hundred plus hours or whatever it is of Breaking Bad right. for a second time. Or like with The Lost Fleet, which is 18 books. I've read that series <laughs> three times because every single time I read it, I feel like I discover something new about it and the concepts are so deep. And that's like, like you said, like a sign of an absolute masterpiece. So I am right there with you on that one, buddy. Like Crystal and, uh, keeps you coming back. Bitch. <laughs> so... Thanks for opening my eyes about some things about Breaking Bad that I had never considered before. And I think you're right. Fuck Walter White. He's never a good guy. You're right. And, exactly. Uh, <laughs> n- next time I won't skip the first five episodes so I can share that take from my own brain, not just from you. So thanks for that. And thanks everyone out there in podcast listening land for checking out the show. We love you guys. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Content Clearinghouse. You can email us like DV, and I promise one of us will read it, Brett, at <laughs> contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. We have a Discord channel. That link is in the show notes, so check that out. Join in over there if you want to send us some messages. And thank you, guys. We'll be back next week bringing content to your ear holes, which is a thing that only I say. Brett never says that. Wouldn't it be funny if we didn't put a behind-the-hears bonus content on the show tonight? Yeah, let's prank those bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Brett uh, just sent me the video of Hitler rocking back and forth. It looks like some big rally. Man, he looks totally cracked out of his head. He's like, it almost looks like he's masturbating. He's rocking back and forth so furiously. He must have just been like so loaded up with coke and injectable cocaine like or meth and injectable cocaine is like completely out of his mind i think it was i think it was some sort of amphetamine um i don't know i keep this video has popped up um i've seen it a few times and i wish i could find i don't know i found like a really uh interesting uh kind of backstory about like what his doctors were doing to keep him alive because he had all these ailments and they were just like basically pumping him full of all this like stuff and uh i mean it's yeah, everybody. Michael should, Jackson, go juice, yeah. like that everybody, same kind of thing. Everybody should check out this video. It's it is it's very kind of creepy and disconcerting. It's weird. Yeah, and the last little clip there, it it zooms down to his hand. You can see he's not actually masturbating, but his hand is in his lap, and it's like his fingers. It's almost like he's like typing on his own knee, like back and real quick. It's really weird. It's disturbing to see him that that amped up about something. Yeah. I feel like you would not want Hitler amped up at all. No. God, that is disgusting. (laughs) 